about things and people who like to listen to like women. To listen to women who know about things. <laughs> I am Charlotte Lydia Riley, and I'm Emma London, and we're back from a unscheduled hiatus, I suppose. Yeah. Where have you been? So I've been in Oxford on a research fellowship at the Bodleian Library. I've been hiding in an archive, essentially, and then I went to Montreal briefly for a few days to visit the Centre of Canadian Architecture? No, the Canadian Centre of Architecture, I keep getting that wrong. <laughs> uh, and to give a talk about the Open University. Oh, interesting. So that's what I've been doing. Interesting. I have much, you know, I don't have great news. I've, the reason we didn't record this earlier was because I was just a bit ill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but we're back now. Yes. And we're going to be talking about women and the vote yes. today. Um, so suffragettes, we are in Britain and Britain is in the middle of this big celebration of a hundred years since some women got the vote. Mm-hmm. Which is probably the first thing to underline. So I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows this already, but you know, historians throughout the land, women's historians throughout the land are having to take shifts this year to add <laughs> a little asterisk to every single piece of suffrage commemoration and say some women. This is not the 100-year anniversary of women in Britain getting the vote. No. So who got the vote? This is the anniversary of... Let me see if I can get this right, because it's actually quite complicated. It's the anniversary of women over the age of 30 who are either property owners, married to property owners, university educated, or living in a house worth more than... an amount of money like renting a house worth in a certain amount of money interesting but it's also the centenary of all working men over the age of 20 all men over the age of 21 getting the right to vote yeah and that's interesting to me at least because i very rarely say what about the men i'm not not normally interested about in writing men into history but i think it is quite interesting that in commemorating this as the anniversary of women getting the right to vote um, we've kind of forgotten that actually it's only a hundred years ago that we had universal male suffrage in this country. So yeah. this is a story about class as well as a story about gender. Yeah. Um, and obviously the reason men got the right to vote in 1918 universally is because, well, partly to dilute the effect of women voting, but um, it's, also, it's mostly actually be- because of their contribution to the First World War. So, yes, not that many women could vote, but women could also stand in elections. Mm -hmm. They could. Um, And so you get the first female MP who takes up her seat. Yes. So the first female MP, the first woman elected to the House of Commons, is Constance Markiewicz. Yes. For Sinn Féin, but she doesn't take up her seat. And there are apparently some doubts whether she would have been able to take up her seat anyway because she had convictions against her. Oh, okay. So I think she... it doesn't, didn't she ha- even have a treason conviction for the Easter uprising? She probably did. So, I mean... And there is apparently a law that says that you can't uh, serve as an MP if you've committed treason. It's rubbish. really weird. <laughs> but she, um, was, she, was def- she was the first woman elected to the House of Commons. The first yes. woman to take up her seat is Nancy Astor, who took up her seat in 1920? 1919. But quite late in 1919, mm-hmm. I think about November time. And to take over a seat that had been vacated by her husband. Yes. And then the... And she was meant to be a caretaker of that seat. She yes. wasn't meant to be... She was only... So her husband got elevated, if that's the way you want to phrase it, um, to the House of Lords. And Nancy was just 
going to keep the seat warm until someone else could fill in. Yeah. But she actually stayed for quite a long time. She and did. she was a very popular MP. She was, and actually she's a good example of... Um, well, she's a good example of how a lot of early female MPs, whilst on one hand claiming very carefully that they weren't standing for women's issues, that they weren't there to represent women, they were there to represent their parties, there's also a kind... There is a kind of cross-party solidarity between... So Ellen Wilkinson and Nancy Astor, for example, had a very yeah. celebrated and close friendship, despite being very politically different. Yeah. Now, Astor's actually... She's actually a really important political figure in the history of women in Parliament and the history of yeah. women politicians. She was, I mean, yes, so she was Lady Astor, mm-hmm. very right-wing. Mm-hmm. Very grand. <laughs> um, American-born, yeah. aristocrats. Um, so she had, I think the stories about her make it clear that because she had quite a lot of privilege and she was used to socialising with members of parliament and party leaders, mm-hmm. so she kind of got away with a lot of stuff but there was the moment when she was taking her seat for the first time and she's basically swarmed by mm-hmm. all of these men and it must have been very intimidating yes so i think maybe other women who came later particularly labor women particularly maybe people like margaret bonfield mm. who was so a she's, trade unionist yeah she's elected um fairly early isn't she in 1920 I want to say and she becomes Sometime a like, yeah. minister in 1926 and a cabinet minister in 1928 yes the first woman to be a cabinet minister the first woman to be a minister and, a ca- and then a cabinet minister um, and obviously 1928 so this is the 90th anniversary this year of all women having the right to vote on the same terms as men 1928 is the flapper election mm. so it's also the moment when you get a, a slight, slightly more Women elected. You get a spike of women being elected. A little spike, yeah. So <laughs> women like my favourite, Mary Agnes Hamilton, who's one of my favourite um, early Labour MPs, who's only an MP from 1929 to 1931 when she loses her seat again. But she's the MP, I think I've referenced her in a previous um, podcast, who wore red shoes oh, yes. because she couldn't wear a red tie. And she wrote a murder mystery called Murder in the House of Commons Yeah, that she wrote on the tube to and from work in Parliament. Excellent. Um, which I've this is a tangent but uh, they have a copy of it in the Bodleian and the last kind of 50 pages of the book are sealed up which is the bit of the book that reveals who the murderer is and it's sealed and it says on the seal if you can resist tearing open the seal to find out who the murderer is and how the story ends you can return this book to the bookshop with the seal intact and receive a full refund what? It's such a clever <laughs> marketing ploy. So they have one in the Bodleian, but apparently, I don't know how many people could resist. That's amazing. Um, but yes, so you get this kind of spike in 1928 in the Flapper election, which is called the Flapper election because 21 year old women can vote, uh, young women can vote. Yeah, and the 20s is the, the decadent decade, mm-hmm. I suppose, with the parties and the young people and. <laughs> <laughs> protests against the war and dreariness yes. and celebration of life but I mean I don't, that is also a bit of a stereotypical image of the 20s because that is a very specific part of the population yeah it is that's a very upper middle class southern southern view of the 20s and then kind of going into the 1930s of course you have the kind of again in Britain slightly stereotypical image of the hungry 30s mm. um, with the kind of depression hitting the north of England although again that's not really the case in the South. You In the South, you have things like the Hoover factory being built and you have relative prosperity. 
Um, and women, you know, continuing. I mean, women like uh, Ellen Wilkinson are elected in this period. Yeah. Um, there is some, like you said, there's a spike in 1928 and a small number of women are elected into this period. Um, so there's a few more in the 1930s. Yes. But there's another spike in 1945. Yes, you have at these women. So again, women like Barbara... I mean, Ellen Wilkinson is re-elected in 1945, but also women like Barbara Castle yeah. um, are elected in that period. Another favourite of the podcast. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then sort of from that period, it's, it's quite a dismal story, actually, isn't it? From 1945 yeah. through to 1997. Yeah. I'm sitting here with a list in front of me, and it's basically around... The, 25 female MPs per election are elected all the way up until 1987 there's 41 mm-hmm. 1992 there are 60 and 1997 there are 120 yeah so at the moment so there were elections in 2017 in mm-hmm. the UK so at the moment there are 208 female MPs yes um which is only 32 percent yeah I think was it 2015 was the moment at which there were more women in as many women in total had been elected to the house of commons as were men in a in one sitting of the house of commons oh wow so i think um, it, it was 2015 so in 2015 every woman who'd ever been an mp yeah had been in the house of commons that would have been the same as the all women who are elected as mps get a little um sign with her number on where she is in the oh, in like the number of women who have been mm-hmm. elected um so they will have an individual number which is quite quite nice but also quite bleak it is quite bleak because <laughs> it's I, I quite a low number actually because on one hand that's quite nice that's a form of quite a kind of quiet commemoration that's actually quite interesting and, and, it, and tying them to the past i suppose mm-hmm. yeah absolutely but on the other hand firstly it's kind of unifying them as just a group of women yeah um, sort of female MPs all being the same but and also it is a bit it's slightly meaningless if that's happening in a context where women are still very much in the minority yeah like if you're kind of constantly being reminded like oh you're only the whatever 500 female MP yeah so I think that's what we recently passed wasn't it? Tracy Brabin maybe was one of the who was elected to yeah replace Joe Cox um th- that must be quite a funny feeling I think yeah so there are 650 MPs mm-hmm. in total. Yes. So, uh, yeah, very small numbers. Why do women get the vote in mm-hmm. 1918? So I have like an undergraduate lecture about this, obviously. Oh, wow. Um, which I'm not going to do on the podcast now. Um, it, I think the, the big historiographical debate, obviously, which again, I think many members of our <coughs> podcast audience will be aware of, is, you know, how far is this... Um, a story of women kind of gaining the vote how far is this a story of women fighting for and winning the vote and how far is this a story of the government deciding to give women the vote you know how far is this something that women took and how far is it something that was given to them yeah and I think that's always that is always a historiographical question about activism and about progress and change yeah you know that's the same conversation we have about things like decolonization or the end of apartheid yeah the conversation is always how far is this driven by kind of activists and how far is this a kind of concession and I think it's really interesting because it's one of those well like all of the topics that you just mentioned the 
women's vote is a topic that is very pacified mm -hmm. in history. There's mm -hmm. a sort of a general assumption that it was because of the war and mm -hmm. that women had stepped up during the war and taken on jobs. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of only very recently I feel like people are talking more about the actual violence and the actual very radical mm -hmm. stances and um, the fights that women, like physical fights that women fought in order to get the vote for a long time. Yeah. And that has all very... It's been kind of whitewashed and watered down mm -hmm. in public history I think for it's, a long time. It's funny in Britain, specifically in the British case, um, and it'd be interesting to talk about the Swedish case in a minute, but in the British case, it is interesting because there has for a long time been a historiographical battle between... Because the, um, the suffrage campaign in Britain was split between the suffragettes and the suffragists, uh, which are... The suffragettes are the violent... Um, kind of direct action campaigners and the suffragettes who are the kind of peaceful constitutional campaigners. And the suffragettes were a much smaller group and the suffragists had much wider support. Yeah. Um, Which is always the case generally, yeah, of course, right? Absolutely. So it's the same with Nonviolence you know, tends to be more popular. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and, 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 like, apart from it's anything less else, risky. Like, but then also just from a practical position as well as what support looks like for political yeah. campaigns is the same as I mean it's exactly the same with you know with strikes the difference between not turning up for work or going on a picket line you're always yeah. going to have a, a difference there between like active and passive kind of support yeah um and and it's interesting because actually I think for many people the the violent suffrage or the suffragettes not violent but the suffragettes who support direct action are actually more household names. It's the Pankhursts. Yeah. And they are household names in Britain. They're people that, you know, if you ask someone in Britain to name a suffragette, they'd probably name... Yeah, they are the household names. They're they are suffragettes. hardly any and then, um, others. Yeah, Millicent Fawcett, who is the leader of the NUWSS, which is the non-violent um, campaign, um, and and uh, related to Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, the first female doctor in Britain, um, and then Emily Davison, who is a member of the radical campaigners and who dies uh, trying to put her suffragette sash around the neck of the king's horse. Yeah, and at has, the Epsom derby. Yes, and has become kind of emblematic of a particular type of suffrage campaign. Yeah, I think most of us have seen those pretty gruesome images mm -hmm. of her being ploughed down by the horse. Mm -hmm. Um, which again just, there's a debate there about what she was intending to do about yeah. whether she was intending to whether that was a sacrifice or not whether that was a sacrifice that she was trying to make I think probably there's been more there's been a lot of focus on that question and, and I think it's maybe not a question that would be asked so vociferously if she wasn't a woman yeah no you're right I think it's a question of people really want to know whether she was wanted to make such a dramatic gesture I think male political campaigners maybe have more um i don't know people are less invested maybe in trying to work out the specific emotional aspects of that campaign. and i feel like it's particularly maybe something that we've inherited from that era as well because of the idea that women were emotional and therefore mm -hmm. unsuitable as voters yeah um too easily swayed by their emotions and i don't know the tidal waters within our bodies or something yeah um your wandering womb. Exactly. Your womb wandering around your body making you hysterical. Exactly. And I, I feel like quite often they disappear or become caricatures. Mm -hmm. I think the caricatures thing is right. But I, then think, it... I think the Pankhursts are really interesting because they are so different. Yes. 
And Iphorn will probably always side a bit more with the Sylvias of the world, the more radical left-wing. Yes. Uh, I love Sylvia and then her kind of post, you know, she gets, um, her mother kind of like, throws her out essentially yeah, because she refuses, quite badly, yeah, she yeah. disowns her because she refuses to marry her Italian anarchist boyfriend and has a child out of wedlock and then moves to Addis Ababa. Sounds like my kind of has woman. Has a state funeral in Ethiopia. I've actually read some letters by Sylvia Pankhurst that she wrote to Arthur Creech Jones, who was colonial secretary in the 19... 19- 40s but she wrote until yeah. in the 1930s and it was one of those moments actually I'm not I'm not a I don't I think of myself as not a particularly emotional historian um but it was one of those You're in control of, of your tidal yeah, waters yeah exactly I'm fully in control of my wandering room but I did feel actually holding letters that Sylvia Pankhurst had written like looking at letters written by Sylvia Pankhurst that was that was quite cool. Yeah. But that was that was a moment where I thought, yeah, this is actually a cool thing to do. And we're kind of straying a little bit from the topic here, but she, I think part of the reason why people know less about her is because she strayed away from the family. She, you know, mm-hmm. she left the country, whereas Christabel only really went as far as Paris. Yes, if I, remember. I think so. Um, and then came back, and mm. Emmeline and Christabel are sort of figures mm-hmm. in in Britain. It's very interesting that they don't win any elections they don't actually become MPs no. a lot of the women who become MPs aren't active suffragettes no. or suffragists um I mean surely more more women are suffragists than suffragettes mm-hmm. uh, going into parliament but it's it's quite a fascinating moment in 1919 mm-hmm. when the first woman to be elected is actually pretty much neither mm-hmm. yeah it is and it's also sort of I don't know sort of saying about how this history has been rewritten or elided and you know there are other women as well other than the Pankhurst who did really quite radical things that you know the things that the women did to try to get the vote I'm not you know I'm not necessarily particularly interested in debates about whether these women are terrorists or freedom fighters or whatever I don't that's not an argument I necessarily need to have yeah but when you look at what they were doing it's clearly really radical you know there's the um, women in um, a suffragette throws a hatchet at Asquith yeah. at one point. Um, when he's prime minister, right? When he's prime minister, so yeah, she throws him. She follows him to Ireland, uh, throws an, uh, throws a hatchet at him. It misses him actually, but it hits uh, uh, the leader of the Irish Nationalist Party um, and cuts part of his ear off. Oh God! Um, they also in the same. I'm reading this from a news story in. Um, and a New Zealand uh, paper actually. Oh, the first country in the world to the have established women's voting rights. Yes, which perhaps in, perhaps says why they're so interested in this story. But they say, you know, a suffragette threw a hatchet at Mr. Asquith, which missed him, but grazed Mr. Evans' ear. But then also, um, a young woman called Evans poured lighter fluid all over the curtains of the box at the Theatre Royal that he was in, and, and set fire to them. Um, it's quite impressive. Which is quite impressive. My favourite bit about this specific story, um, which we can probably put a, a link to on the website, is that it has the sub the subheading uh, "Home Secretary Shaken," which in, I think when I read it assumed meant an emotional state. The Home Secretary was shaken, but no, um, apparently a suffragette came up behind him and seized him and shook him violently. Wow! Uh, so she physically shook the Home Secretary, which is such a I That's don't an image. It feels like such a funny thing to have done. And then yeah, there's it's sort of. The idea of this idea of women kind of going out into the world and wanting to cause damage to mm. draw attention not only to the fact that they don't have the vote but just generally their lack of power in society. Yeah, it's like Carol Diehouse in her book um, talks about 
uh, Jane Brailsford who conceals an axe and a bunch of chrysanthemums when she's out and about in order to do her suffragette violence. It's quite interesting because in other parts of the world, so I can always find parallels to anything mm-hmm. uh, that go to South Africa, but in South Africa, a lot of the um, very crucial anti-apartheid underground work was being done by women mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s because mm-hmm. the ANC, which is this big organisation uh, that mass mobilised before it was banned in 1960, um, a lot of the leaders go to prison or mm-hmm. go abroad and women are left to do the work and they kind of have to do the work. But because the apartheid state is very um, patriarchal mm-hmm. and has a very specific view of women in general, but but black women in particular, they kind of don't really notice for a mm-hmm. long time. They think of them as like peaceful wives mm-hmm. Um so they kind of let them get away with a lot of stuff. I mean, there is a lot of surveillance of some very famous women. Albertina Sisulu is one of them. Mm-hmm. But the women still manage to get around it. Um, and I think some bits of this suffragette violence is interesting from the same aspect. It's mm-hmm. so unexpected that a woman would be carrying lighter fluid at a theatre. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. they don't even think of checking. I mean, the security is obviously less than it is today. Mm-hmm. But it's still quite fascinating that they get away with like carrying hatches in the street. And yeah. a lot of them are obviously women of, of better means than the average yeah, member of the population. Yeah, there's a big class dimension to this. And the class dimension is important as well because, you know, this is coming out of a 19th century, 19th century gender relations in Britain, which really push the concept of separate spheres, right? Women are kept in the domestic spaces and women are supposed to be pacifiers and they're not supposed to be intellectual and they're supposed to have this kind of um kind of emotional the moral high ground women are morally better than men but that also means that they have to be domestic and kind of limited and inward looking and yeah and if they look remotely close to falling off that pedestal Mm -hmm. then they are worse than exactly. you could possibly imagine. Exactly, and not just, you know, that, you know, so women are discouraged from going to university, you know, obviously kind of women and sex is the, it's a kind of topic of macro anxiety in the 19th century, but just generally as well, women, you know, are supposed to be kind of pacific and, and moral. Mm. And so the kind of performative violence of suffra- of the suffragettes, I think, is, is really, has to be seen in that context. Yeah. Of, it's not just about violence... It's not just about violence in the same way that a violent protest today would be, which is about drawing attention to yourself or making a point or making a statement. It's also about breaking out of the bonds of what it means to be feminine yeah. in this period. And like you say, particularly because, perhaps, the vote is being denied to women because of their femininity. Yeah. It's, about, it's partly about bursting out of those barriers. And maybe also partly about leaning into the idea that women are these irrational creatures you know if if you're told that you can't vote because you are irrational then why not break all the windows in the house of commons yeah like you know you don't really have anything to lose by by pushing that do you if if you don't have any rights anyway it doesn't really matter have i told you that i've been in the cupboard have you been in the cupboard explain the cupboard to (laughs) uh, listeners of our podcast who might be slightly confused emily davison who later died uh at epsom derby um she i think it's a 1911 census Mm -hmm. it must be the 1911 census she um uh snuck into the house of commons there's a little chapel underneath westminster hall yeah the crypt 
where there is a cupboard. And when you hear the word cupboard, I always assume that it was like an, an actual cupboard, like a really small space where mm-hmm. you can maybe hang a coat, but it's more of a changing room. Okay. So it's actually quite big. Like a cloakroom. <laughs> yeah, it's a cloakroom. Um, and she snuck in there and spent the night so that she could put down the Houses of Parliament mm-hmm. as her address mm-hmm. on the census, which is quite impressive. Um, and there's now a little brass plaque on the door that um, Tony Benn kind of snuck in, apparently with the help of Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn helped him. Um, Benn also, um, this is a, a side story, but Tony Benn missed a really important vote in the House of Commons because he was busy showing, he was showing a visitor the, the cupboard in the crypt where really? Davison had hidden, yeah. This was, um, happened in the 1960s when he was postmaster general. There okay. was an important vote they had to get through and it ended up tied because oh, he was too busy Tony. hanging out in the crypt. It's a very nice crypt. The chapel is also very nice. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, that's quite an impressive thing to have done. Mm-hmm. To just like stay behind and lock yourself in somewhere and then put that down as your address. They did all sorts of things. They posted themselves through. They tried yes. to post them through, themselves through the postal system um, as protests to get yeah. to their MPs' offices. They the the census was a big deal. So because the census, so for again people who maybe aren't British, uh, any any non-British listeners, the census happens. Census happens in Britain once every ten years, but on the one, so 1901, 1911, 1921, and you have to record everybody living in your household, um, and you record their occupation. And so lots of women took the 1911 census as a moment at which they could protest formally, because this is a historic document which now you can go and look up. And so women either refuse to record themselves on the census because they say they're not citizens, so they shouldn't be recorded, mm. or they record themselves and they record their occupation as being non-citizen, or they record their occupation as being suffragette, or mm. um, as meaningless or nothing, or, you know, they write all these different kinds of things in these spaces um, in order to record. And, and you know, and that has recorded for history. That's a really interesting engagement with the idea of writing women into historical documents yeah because they always would have been on that document for them but for them to be on that document and making that explicit statement about their their citizenship yeah i think is really interesting the majority of women on that document will go in as wives yes or daughters yes or housewife maybe because what is quite interesting about the census is that you don't you self-record your occupation Mm. um and i think that is I, I think maybe I'm trying to remember if that's now changed because you fill it you can fill it in online now and I'm trying to remember if it's now like a drop down box or something but I don't think it is I think you self record your occupation still and so the census is interesting because people write in what they think they do like yeah. what they think so just as a sort of document of social history it's interesting anyway mm. and so the different ways in which sort of housewife can be you know mother or wife or housewife is interesting even in itself yeah the other thing the suffragettes do which I which I very much love is they um they deface um portraits so they slash the roque be venus and there's a picture on the national gallery website of the roque be venus with its slashes and they've they've um they've mended it now so you can't see the pictures but it's really impressive but they also slash a a, (laughs) they slash a portrait of thomas carlyle who is a philosopher i have very little time for so i'm very excited (laughs) about this and the national gallery never mended that and it's oh. going on exhibition this year as part of their suffragette exhibition. Is oh, excellent. The slashed portrait of Thomas Carlyle, um, <laughs> which I think for for me and maybe for them had particular resonance because Carlyle um, has such a famous kind of um, 
Carla has such a famous intellectual and I think personal battle with John Stuart Mill and Mill is one of the very early male supporters of female suffrage so I mm. think Carlyle you know and his kind of anti-suffrage it, they've picked that specifically and intentionally in yeah. the same way that the Rope Venus was picked because it's a picture of a, a very passive woman and they slash all across her back um, and it's a really violent gesture yeah um, it's a way of kind of marking something out what do you think is going to come out of all of these celebrations of the centenary? So I've been really frustrated. Um, I think historians are always frustrated by centenaries and by celebrations. <laughs> I was really frustrated by the way that... You're such killjoys. Yeah, I know. I feel, I feel awful about it. Um, I'm clearly, it makes you a very, like a Debbie Downer being a historian. But um, I was really frustrated with the way that Theresa May spoke about the centenary. So at the beginning of February, she... I think it was the Vote 100 thing. I think it might have been actually the event at the House of... Yeah, uh, the House I of, was there. So the, the <laughs> event at the House of Parliament. And, and she, the kind of, um, you know, Downing Street or Parliament um, was tweeting about this this event and was kind of doing little graphics of her speech. And one of the quotes that, that May said in her speech was eventually through a free and open encounter with the opposing view, the truth of their arguments won the day. Yeah. That's definitely not what happened. It wasn't a free and open encounter with the opposing view. The suffragettes literally died. Yeah. She makes it sound like it was some sort of Oxford debate. Yes. And the other side were like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you yeah. no, no, you're reasonable and that's a good that's a good amount of facts you've got for us. Let's let's exactly. give it to you. The suffragettes were, they were imprisoned, they were force-fed, which yeah. we haven't talked about, but they were force-fed because they went on hunger strike. Force-fed with the medical um, appliances that were available uh, over 100 years ago. Yeah, it exactly. was gruesome, it was brutal, it was, in some cases, lethal. Yeah, exactly. They were attacked, they were attacked in the street, they were attacked by policemen, they were mocked, they were denigrated. Like, the name suffragette, sexually assaulted, like, which there hasn't been as much work done on as there could be. I think people are doing more work on this now. Yeah. I mean, the name suffragette is itself an insult. The name suffragette was supposed to be a criticism and they just they adopt it as something that they like yeah you know something that they can kind of get behind as a badge of honor but the idea that this was and you know there, there isn't it's not about a free and open encounter with the opposing view because the opposing view was that women weren't citizens women essentially weren't people mm. and i think it's so dangerous to re- try to remember the suffragettes as being this like yeah we all had an oxford debate and the suffragettes won yeah I mean, firstly, that's not how power works. I mean, ultimately, parliament a parliament made of men had to decide to give women the vote. Yeah. Women in this debate, it wasn't like if the suffragettes had won this notional debate, they would have just got the vote anyway. You know, there was still kind of power operating here, but also... And there were, you know, spaces within parliament was hindering women's attendance yeah. at the best of times. Exactly. And, and, you know, this is, as we've said at the beginning, a parliament comprising only... Of men. And middle class men. Yeah. Though, because again, working class men aren't included in here anyway. This is not a, you know, a, a parliament of equals or a debate of equals. And the idea, I think it just gets to the heart of, you know, this is at the moment in Britain and in America and in Canada, there's this, you know, an enormous kind of outrage about free speech and, and, and debates and things, which is not about the freedom of people like the suffragettes to speak. It's about the freedom of reactionary forces yeah. to be able to say things that hurt or harm people. Yeah. And and casting the suffragettes as being like participants in a debate yeah. is part of valorizing that idea, right? That everyone should just be able to debate everything and that your humanity yeah. basically should be up for debate. I would really love to be a pacifist and and um 
be one of those people who are so certain the debate will get you anywhere. But I feel like this is one of those moments where unless mm-hmm. there's an underlying threat of people actually becoming so fed up mm-hmm. that they'll do something, uh, whether it's slashing um, portraits or mm-hmm. or something else, it's it's hard to see what else needed to have happened. I can't see that there would ever have been enough men in Parliament to want women to vote unless there had been more pressure. Yeah, power never concedes power without a threat. No. Like, if you're powerful, if you're in charge, people don't... I don't know, I just feel... I feel like increasingly at the moment that, that I said, there's these kind of two things around free speech. That One is that free speech is being reconfigured at the moment to be about the right of people to use hurtful or harmful speech. Yeah. So kind of a backlash against political correctness. And so free speech on campus is always being targeted against safe spaces oh, yeah. or trigger warnings, all of these things which people don't really understand um, because they're essentially unobjectionable con- like ideas. But there's also the sense that, yeah, that apparently power you know apparently power is just something that's kind of handed over and that's not yeah, the power case can be reformed yeah exactly. i think this is one of the things that makes historians killjoys though because we most of us at least are very aware of the fact that the status quo is the status quo and mm-hmm. it's this hegemonic um institution mm-hmm. basically that just you know it just sits there <laughs> and it's being protected by lots of people who have a vested interest in it staying the same. Obviously, mm-hmm. if women are going to start voting, men who are in Parliament are going to be threatened. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, first of all, a lot of them didn't support women's votes, so they're not going to be popular with the new female electorate. Um, and that's not to say that the entire female electorate supported the right for women to vote no, either. No, of course. But, you know, there's, there's a, a real divide in opinions between mm-hmm. the two. But also they're going to have to give up their seats... Yeah. Because women are going to come into Parliament. And I think that's something... Like, when you move on to 1987 and, and Labour establishing um, all-women shortlists, mm-hmm. which two Labour male Labour MPs took to court and had declared illegal because it, it was against the Sex Discrimination Act of 1975. Um, mm-hmm. You sort of think, well, yeah, the, your problem is that you're not allowed to stand as a candidate mm-hmm. in a particular seat where you would have liked to stand as a candidate. Mm-hmm. The men who took them to court wasn't that they hadn't been elected MPs, but they wanted to become MPs. And it's just, you know, you just have to share. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but people don't do that nicely. No, exactly. And I think it's also the sort of the all women shortlist is an interesting it's an interesting later development of the suffragette history. Right? Yeah. Because women get the right to vote in a limited way and then on the same terms as men. But women still don't, you know, women still, as we've just said, women are still not really represented in Parliament on the same level as men. They're still not, we still don't have 50%. And, you know, and now we're encouraged to think about there having been progress. And, of course, there has been some progress in the number of women elected, largely due to the Labour all-women all shortlists. Yes, so they came in in 1997, and that's yeah. where you see a, a doubling of the number of yeah. women in Parliament immediately from one election to the next. Labour is now close to parity. It's closer to parity than the other two. Yeah. Um, parties, you know, and, and the idea that, you know, that's an important, it's an important kind of next step to suffrage, you know, the vote's not enough. Although I do, I also agree. Edna O'Brien, the novelist, once said, the vote, I thought, is nothing to women, women should be armed. And I do think, <laughs> when I'm saying the vote is not enough, I do sound a little bit like Edna O'Brien. But the <laughs> idea that, 
one, the idea that the vote is given to women just as this kind of, you know, out of the goodness of people's heart, but also the idea that that's all you need or that that's kind of the the, the sort of level playing field argument right there. As long yeah. as things on paper are, are equal, then that's... Okay. Yeah, and that's what people have against all women's shortlist or like women's quotas in general, uh, which is something that I study quite a lot. Um, it is that it's it privileges the less qualified. Is the the main argument against it is that well you should just choose the best candidate, mm-hmm. which is a complete. You know, you just completely ignore the fact that there are very set ways of choosing candidates, mm-hmm. and people decide who are who the most suitable candidate is. Mm-hmm. They're going to have their very set ideas about who that person is. I mean, Margaret Thatcher found it very difficult to get selected to stand mm-hmm. as an MP for the Conservatives because Conservative women in local Conservative branches mm-hmm. didn't think that a woman should be an MP. They thought she should be at home with her young kids. Yeah. Um, so sh- she found opposition from women. A lot of women find opposition from men mm-hmm. who just feel like they're not suitable. Yeah, and, of course, and like you say, like this... It's not like there is a specific list of things you need to do to be an MP. It's not like there is a list of qualifications, right? No. Unlike many other Although jobs. Although it does seem to be white, male and Oxbridge. Well, exactly. Privately educated thing. and then Oxbridge is, is a good way. That when we're talking about like the most suitable candidate, it makes it sound like it's a job in which there is a specific job description and you need to like hit a number of things. And you know, even in that case, I still think in many cases you should have all women shortlists or BME shortlists and things. I think that would be a good idea for lots of positions and actually you know academic jobs I saw an advert for an academic job at Kent the other day which said you know we encourage applications from women and people of colour who are underrepresented at this level they're not having a sort of a specific shortlist but you know they are trying to encourage things but certainly for being an MP where there is literally no qualification beyond the fact that you have to be a British citizen and not what in prison a lord or a debtor who yeah, are, or and apparently in the in the uh, case of Constance Markiewicz, it's not not also not a, a tree, not, having not treasonous, apparently. <laughs> um, you know there aren't any qualifications, and so the idea that you, the best candidate is something that you can just kind of judge, and that white Oxbridge men would always come out on top of that. Yeah, it, it immediately illustrates the role of kind of subjectivity and bias in choosing the best candidate. Yeah, I met Diane Abbott the other week, and. Um, talked about how she when she decided to stand for parliament mm-hmm. and she was saying that they'd she'd been in very much involved in the campaign against the sus law mm-hmm. which is like a the, stop and search yeah the former version of stop and search which um really discriminates against non-white mm-hmm. young black men young black men quite simply um and she was saying that they had noticed while they were doing that campaigning they noticed that even mps for very diverse communities were white mm-hmm. so there was a big push in 1987 and that's when four uh, BME MPs yeah. are elected and Diane Abbott was one of them and I think that's very important but it also takes a, a specific type of person to withstand yes. the pressures of fitting into the bill oh god yeah um, I mean her her kind of political trajectory is really impressive yeah. but it's so much more impressive when you consider the context in which she's had to carve out her career yeah um, and what she's had to put up with you know she she is Cambridge. Uh, she is Cambridge educated. Absolutely, but even that, you know, even sort of going to Cambridge in the first place yeah. is also very impressive in that context. What's the story in Sweden then? When do women get the vote in Sweden? Uh, so there's an interesting period in the 18th century where women have the vote, hmm. but not all women. And see, in Britain, actually, you know, 
some women had the vote before 1832, because 1832 is the Great Reform Act, and that's the first moment when there's any sense of trying to make the vote even slightly democratic. Yeah. And that that's when it kind of goes down, you know, this is when they're trying to get rid of... Um, I want to say rubber buttons because that's a blackadder thing. Rubber barons. When they're trying to get rid of rubber barons <laughs> and they actually sort of buy into the idea of democracy. And that's the point at which women are written out of the electorate in Britain. Yeah. That's so before really that point they could have voted theoretically if they'd reached the very, very lofty heights of, you know, the eight people who could vote or whatever, yeah. then one of them theoretically yeah. could have been a woman. So Sweden had a constitutional was a constitutional monarchy for a I don't know how many years, is it maybe sixty years? 55, 60 years from like 1718 and onwards. They call it the freedom time. I love the idea that a constitutional monarchy is just something you could experiment with for a bit and then be like, yeah, we're not really into (laughs) this. (laughs) Well, what happened was that a king took against it and staged a coup. Mm -hmm. Um, He later got murdered. I think they are connected. But um, yeah, so there were a few women, but they, it was obviously a very qualified vote. And I don't mm-hmm. actually know. It's, it's quite a complicated system. It's like the, the German burger mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thing that you have to have a specific profession. You have to be um, considered of age, mm-hmm. which is really difficult if you're a woman. You basically have to be a widow. Mm-hmm. Or you can, at some point in the 19th century, Swedish women who are unmarried above the age of 30 or something like mm-hmm. that can go to court and be declared of age. So in the 19th century, some women can vote in municipal elections in Sweden, mm-hmm. but the the law that um, allows for female suffrage mm-hmm. on the same conditions as male suffrage comes mm-hmm. in in 1919, mm-hmm. and the first election is in 1921, mm-hmm. and that's when the first women enter parliament as so well. So actually very close to Britain. Yeah. Although earlier because you get universal suffrage. Yes. Ten years earlier. And, um, I mean, part of that story, I think, is because of the other Nordic countries. Mm-hmm. So people often think of Sweden as the sort of outlier mm-hmm. in Nordic politics. But Finland gets uh, universal suffrage, including women, in 1906, mm. when it's a grand duchy that belongs to the Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the 1905 revolution. I was going to say, is that because which women was in Russia get the vote? Women! Yeah, of course. <laughs> the bread riots in, in Russia. Um, and then Norway follows in 1913, Denmark and mm-hmm. Iceland. Iceland belongs to Denmark. They get it in 1915. Mm-hmm. So I think Sweden kind of... Is pushed into it. Pushed into it. But it's also a long history of women's campaigning to get the mm-hmm. vote. That's like at the end of the 19th century. Actually, I'm getting this wrong now. I think it's in 1913 mm-hmm. that there's like a mass petition mm-hmm. signed by 350,000 women. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is an enormous amount of people in a country that today has about 10 million inhabitants. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was obviously very well organised and very strong. And a lot of what women did in politics in Sweden was to um, organise cooperative societies and sort of try to make money for themselves mm-hmm. and become property owners. And this is, there's a longer history of that in Britain as well. In order yeah. to get working men the right yeah. to vote, yeah, they yeah. had to be property owners. The university I did my PhD at, Birkbeck set up a building society. That's interesting. Um, to allow men to save, to buy their houses so, so that they, they could, could vote. Them. That's so something that Rosa Campbell, who's a professor of yeah. politics at Birkbeck, told me. It's quite, you know, it, 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 there are definitely correlations between the two. Yeah, um, it's very similar. So people are trying to work within the status quo to get themselves the benefits of yeah. citizenship. 
Yeah, because the story in Britain is also a story of power moving from rural spaces to urban spaces. And um, this is earlier, this is in the 19th century, the kind of expansion of the su- of suffrage. Mm. And that's about moving the qualification from home ownership to being able to have it if you're renting. Oh, yeah. um, so men who rent property worth, I think, more than £10 a year in 1884 get the right to vote because they they are brought into uh like rent renters are brought into suffrage but that's a story about urban spaces that's a story about cities needing to enfranchise people yeah because otherwise you have a a thing where you know landowners in the countryside can vote um but almost no urban populations can because it's so much rarer to own property this thing in sweden was that for a long time the more money you had the more votes you had Mm -hmm. so one person could have more votes than the next person because of the amount of property they own. In Northern Ireland in the 1960s, until the 19, until the 1970s, um, not in national elections, but in local elections, which were very important in Northern Ireland, um, you got your votes were based entirely on home ownership and you could have up to six. Oh, wow. And this is one of the issues in the civil rights movement in the 1960s in Northern Ireland, that um, property owners are enfranchised and renters are not. And that, um, and that not only are property owners enfranchised, but they can be enfranchised up to six times, wow. whereas renters aren't. So we, we said that New Zealand was the first to get mm-hmm. the votes, and that's 1893. Yes, and then Australia follows. 1902. But when do Indigenous Australians get the votes? 1970. Almost. 1962. Damn it. I knew that was close. I, <laughs> um, I mean, Samita, So can you... Count that as universal suffrage when it no, excludes a large not. number of the population. I mean, Samita Mukherjee, um, who is at Bristol, has done lots of really good work on um, suffrage in the empire, and particularly Indian women, mm. um, and not just you know, kind of, and both in terms of women in India agitating for the vote in India, and then also in terms of women, uh, Indian women in Britain, who mm. become often become kind of involved in or sometimes even kind of figureheads for um suffrage campaigns in britain um there's a really famous picture during a suffrage kind of march of indian women under oh, an yeah. indian banner that's often used to kind of talk about it's, it's often used by historians as kind of a way into talking about this as being you know britain's not just britain in this period it is an empire and obviously one of the important elements of imperial feminism is the role that white women in britain have in you know both being kind of oppressed by patriarchal forces in Britain, but also having a lot of a, a key role in oppressing people around yeah. the empire based on race and racial hierarchy, um, and actually you know white women women in Britain use activity in the empire in order to try to demonstrate that they have the ability and the um, like legitimacy to have the vote at home as well. So the 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 relationship with not only New Zealand and Australia, but also with kind of India, South yeah. Africa is really interesting and important. It's fascinating. And often missed out of the of the story. Yeah. Um I um last year, year before last, I was at the conference in Iceland mm-hmm. where I was on a panel with uh, Krista Kalman who's mm-hmm. a suffragette historian. Very much team Sylvia, I get the feeling. And um Joan Sangster, mm-hmm. who's a Canadian feminist historian who also does quite a lot of work on voting rights mm-hmm. and it was really interesting because it, it was a panel that was about um nordic women's links to other mm-hmm. women around the world and it's so clearly that these things travel the magazines travel yes yeah, um yeah. the news travel mm-hmm. is Absolutely. sort of they go and visit each other also because a lot of these 
women, obviously far from all of them, and I think that's what Krista Kalman has done excellent work, kind of uncovering the fact that a lot of the activists for the Women's Social and Political Union weren't very middle class. There mm-hmm. was working class women among them. Yeah. Um, but the leadership tended to be very well um, travelled. Yes. And met and made connections. So it's again women's vote. Women get the vote in various at various times. In Liechtenstein, they got the vote in nineteen eighty four. Yes, well, in um, France, women get the vote in nineteen forty five, and in in Switzerland, it's nineteen seventy one. Yeah, which is an important element to the story because now a lot of, um, a lot of kind of Western centric feminism, and particularly maybe the kind of feminism. So say in France, the kind of feminism which has a very uneasy relationship with. Um, race mm. sort of white feminism in france which has a really difficult relationship with islam for mm. example um and the kind of uh, quite right-wing white feminism which often kind of singles out islam as being uh, particularly kind of exploitative of or oppressive towards women yeah and and builds a kind of sense of white nationhood on kind of apparently this sense of french female empowerment and women having equality within france and ha- women having particular equality within you know the kind of liberté égalité mm. marianne yeah exactly um Sorority, I guess, is the female fraternity. <laughs> but the, um, you know, it's important, and you know, and, and and sort of highlighting, for example, the very limited access to um, politics that women in Saudi Arabia have. Mm. It's important to counter that with the fact that women in France actually only got the vote in 1945, which is not that long ago. Mm. You know, it's not like um, women in quote unquote the West have always been treated in in a you know, in a way which kind of foregrounds their equality and their political yeah. rights and everything. And it, it's often, you know, this is often something which is used quite flatly to talk about, for example, women in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, which is obviously, it's obviously really important and women um, in countries around the world who have limited access to suffrage or women, limited access to kind of political activism more generally or other ways in which their rights are are limited so for example the driving ban until recently in Saudi Arabia yeah um you know that's obviously very important but it's also um you have to kind of guard against that being used as a way of talking about different civilizations or different attitudes to women which are used to kind of make bigger arguments about race and and the superiority of, yeah, exactly, kind of, of Western systems. Yes, which, which on all of those arguments are always built on the idea that in the West women have equality, in the West women have political rights. But actually, you know, Britain has nowhere near the number of female MPs that women, uh, that Rwanda does, for example. Yeah. Um, Rwanda has about 64 or 65%. Yeah. I mean, for, for very specific, are, yeah. historically specific but, reasons. But, I mean, but, Cuba has around yeah. 50%. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I mean, women's... I've just, you know, I've just finished reviewing um, a book about the International um, Women's Year Conference in 1975. Oh, but you Jocelyn Alcott. Yeah, by Jocelyn Alcott, which is a really, really brilliant book. But that's held in Mexico City in 1975, and what's really interesting there is the kind of collision between Western, particularly American, feminists... Uh, because actually not many British feminists are there because they can't, they're all kind of grassroots groups, they can't afford to travel to Mexico City. But the collision between American feminist ideas and desires and the women of Latin America, who it is assumed are much more oppressed, but actually often have very key roles in labour movements in Latin America or in yeah. other kind of, or in indigenous rights movements and things like this. So the story of suffrage, I think, is often 
it's often used to tell a very particular story about progress. Yeah. Uh, and it's really important as historians to try and resist that story as much as possible because it's not, it isn't actually, you know, it doesn't make sense. And hopefully that's what we've done now. Yes, I think right? so. so. I have a poem. Yes. Um, which I really love. Um, which is a poem by Kim Moore and as usual we will put this on the um, website. I actually have two poems because I also have a poem by a woman called Alice Dewar Miller who in 1915, she was an American suffragette and she wrote a book called Are Women People? Which was a satirical book and there's a really good article about it on, I think on the hairpin, which we can again link to in our footnotes. Um, And she has this, she has kind of um, fashion notes past and present um, and so she says, uh, 1880, anti-suffrage arguments are being worn long, calm and flowing this year with the dominant note that of women's intellectual inferiority. <laughs> um, and she has a really, yeah, sort of really funny point about um, suffrage that she's writing at the time to try and counter anti-suffrage arguments. But the actual poem I wanted to highlight was this poem by Kim Moore that's just called Suffragette, which starts off, and if you heard, saw her hiding in the air ducts of Parliament, it was only to listen to the speeches. And if she set fire to post boxes and burnt letters, it was only certain envelopes she put pepper in. And if she threw a rock or two at one carriage or another, they were at least wrapped in words. Rebellion against tyrants is obedience to God. And it finishes... And she mentions things like hiding in the cupboard of the House of Commons. She talks about the Cat and Mouse Act. It's a very historically um, informed poem. (laughs) But it finishes, not knowing whether she chose to die or whether in her dreams she saw the king's horse flying through the line, her sash around its neck. At least we know of the bruised shins of the horse and of the jockey haunted by that woman's face. And it's, yeah, I think it's a nice tribute to women who kind of had a very difficult uh, and important fight. And it's a nice tribute to Emily Davison Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And so our recommendations for this week are also going to be poetry books. Yes, they are. Which is yours? Uh, So mine is a... I feel um, weirdly up to date and current with this recommendation because (laughs) this book has literally just come out. Wow. Uh, It's a book called... Put your finger on the pulse of poetry. Which is not something I would normally say about myself, but it was, uh, despite my love, my clear love of poetry as as, um, shown by this podcast, it was a book by uh, a woman called Sophie Collins who is at Hateful Daughter on... Twitter. Mm. Uh, it's called Who is Mary Sue? And it's a really interesting book of poetry because it's half poems and it's half kind of bits of critical commentary and um, excerpts from interviews with other women and things like this. Um, and it's just really good. Um, and I particularly liked it. I put a picture up on Twitter earlier. There's a whole poem which is just talking about being in an archive and going through boxes, which obviously spoke to me very personally, which I really enjoyed. So I would very, very much recommend that book. I think it's very good. That's great. I'm going to do my usual thing of you recommend something done by a woman and I'm going to be like, well, I've read something by a man. Um, And this is going to be, um, well, I tend to do stuff about Nobel Prize winners, don't I? Yeah, this is your your thing. My my thing is the Nobel Prize laureates, um, particularly the literary ones. So my recommendation is going to be a fairly recent, but obviously old, book by um, Seamus Heaney, District and Circle, Mm -hmm. which was first published in 2006. Mm. So it's among the later of his works. It's um, it includes one of my favourite poems of all time, which is called Polish Sleepers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a book that I feel particularly connected 
with for the very strange reason that I used to read it on the train home mm-hmm. when I went from teaching in the evening at Birkbeck, where I taught uh, the history of the British Empire on Tuesday nights, and then I, on Wednesday mornings I had to be at UCL at 9am mm-hmm. teaching uh, Nordic politics from the 1990s and onwards. So I really needed something to just switch my brain off and think mm-hmm. about something else, and I got really hooked on Seamus Heaney, because he does... He does that really well. Mm. He's just sort of draws you into his very sparse um, lines and then re- the stories he tells. So he's a man. He's a dead white man, but yeah. I'm recommending him. I think you know. I think there is there are lots of ways in which he he's a good ally. I think actually. Yeah. I feel like he, there's a really uh, there's a really lovely Twitter account that just posts little snippets of Seamus Heaney. Oh yeah. yeah. Which is a lovely which is a lovely thing to see on Twitter. Yes, a good ally, a Nobel laureate. Yes, and he's 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 my recommendation. Um, next time we're going to talk about activism. Yes, activism and maybe particularly trade unions. Yes, uh, trade union activism and women and the history of those things. Because something that we haven't mentioned right now is that we're both actually on strike. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both part of the big strike in a higher education. Yeah, one of the biggest, we I think, one of the biggest industrial actions. The, you know, one of the biggest industrial actions Britain has seen in a long time. Yeah, um, I think uh, I saw today that we, Britain's now lost four hundred thousand hours of work in yeah. this, as part of this union action. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about that next time. Hopefully, maybe fingers crossed, at a point at which there will actually be news about it rather than just a kind of yeah. So the strike is is to preserve pensions against cuts that would see them. Um, fall to about £9,000 a year mm-hmm. um, which is academics don't make a lot of money so having enormous cuts to pensions is going to be severely impacting people who are already sort yeah. of struggling to save and for lots of reasons as well they start earning late and there's a lot of casualised labour at the beginning of your job yeah. and lots and lots of reasons um, I think the reason there's been so much support for this industrial action is that actually we're all striking against much bigger things marketization of education neoliberalism in universities casualized labor yeah student fees um and it's been supported by students mm-hmm. which is very heartening to see and the financial times and the financial times just that noted and, like, pinko commie paper yeah and you know some cambridge colleges mm-hmm. um yeah it's <laughs> it's been quite fascinating to see um, so, so yes, yeah, hopefully we'll have time. news on that, but we will definitely talk about women and trade unionism, and that's a follow-on from from women and the vote as well. Yes. Okay. So you can uh, find us on Twitter uh, at TNKPod. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can email us. You can follow us both on our personal Twitter accounts. Um, and we should mention as well that we now have uh, on our website tomorrowneverknows.com no. TomorrowNeverKnowsPod.com. Tomorrow we uh, now also have a link to donations. Um, yes, we're gathering some cash for hosting fees, and if we get more money than we need, we're going to use it for inviting guests and yes. and things like that. So it's all going to be channeled back into the podcast. And if you donate a certain amount, then we can we'll send you merchandise, which yes. I'm super excited about having Tomorrow Never Knows merchandise. <laughs> But on that note, we'll, you'll hear from us in a few weeks. Yeah, see you soon. Bye. Bye.